we're going to be talking a little bit today about Mary. Um, Mary may not have caught, Mary was the person speaking in, in that scripture. We'll talk about it just a little bit more. Um, but uh, first I want to step back a little from that specific passage and talk about Mary. So what is the attribute that is most associated with Mary? When, when we say Mary, one word in particular is often attached to it. Virgin Mary. It's uh, basically, it, it comes as one package. And, and so, uh, first of all, how would you like it if, you know, your sexual status were the one thing people remember about you? That would be a little interesting. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is I don't think that it is the most interesting thing about her, and certainly not in this story. Um, but, but let's back up just a second. And this is a really, uh, actually, th- this title, the Virgin Mary, and the importance of that is really important and has been really important for in the entirety of Christian history. Um, it shows up as early as like 150 BC. So this is like 100 years after Jesus. Um, and it continues on and on. And there's traditions in which it's so important that she's ever virgin, that she never stops being a virgin. And in some traditions, that's this thing that you have to defend because that's a cornerstone of your beliefs. And we're not so much attuned to it as Protestants since we don't have the same relationship with Mary as some other traditions do. But Mary is such a fascinating figure and for much of it, all people are focusing on is whether or not she's had sex. Um, in the ancient world, virginity was very important. because So if you remember that women were understood as being property, and so when you took a wife, you were literally gaining a piece of property. If you're coming at it from that mindset then you want to make sure that your property is intact and not defective. And so in that perspective, they came forward and said, you know, this is so important that we enforce this, that we police women's bodies to make sure that this is what's happening. So, not cool, y'all. All right, good. We're on the same page. We'll call it good. Um, so, uh, anyway, this obsessing with her sexual status. We've done it over the millennia. And it really, I don't think that it really gets at her greatest achievement or even the most interesting thing about her. For me, the most interesting thing about her has to do somewhat with her sexuality, but it has so much more to do with her resolve and her commitment to save her people. And, and to get at this, Let's, uh, let's go somewhere entirely different. Let's talk about surrogacy in India. So, I- India, so surrogacy is, you know, having somebody uh, who's not the two partners carry your child and birth the child. And, and there's a variety of reasons that folks might have a surrogate. And it's complicated and deeply ambiguous. 
And it just gets even more ambiguous when we talk about looking in uh, Americans looking in India for this. So in, in America, uh, there's a whole lot of, say, regulations to, to help ensure safety, all, all these good things. And in India, there's a lot fewer regulations around surrogacy practices. And overall, many of the population are much poorer, and so they're willing to work for less. And so women in India get paid somewhere between a third and a tenth of what American women do for being surrogates. And so some people head over there because it's cheap. It's cheap bodily labor. And uh, some surrogacy centers over there do it well. They, they really do. They do it great. But if they say, we only treat people who are infertile, and somebody else has some other reason that they want to become a surrogate, they can just go across the street and somebody else will take care of that for them. And so there's this deeply ambiguous relationship in India with surrogacy of all these outsiders coming in and bringing a lot of money into the economy and providing jobs for some people, but it being potentially deeply problematic, potentially exploitative. In India, a lot of the women who work are from the lowest castes and are as the poorest of the poor in India, and so they can't read to know the contracts that they are signing to enter into the deals. Um, advocates, advocates say that it's not exploitative because it's a mutual contract they enter into, but critics say they wouldn't enter into it if they weren't so, uh, so poor and so much needing of the money. And so why, why do women in India do this? Often the poorest of the poor offering their bodies as labor, as making money through giving birth, through carrying a baby. And for them, for the poorest of the poor, this is salvation. One example is a, a woman named Najima. Her husband earns 50 to 60 rupees a day. So that's about 120, uh, excuse me, a buck 20 to a buck 45 for one day's labor at his scrap metal shop. In being a surrogate mother, she can earn $5,500, which is the equivalent to 11 years of the husband's labor. This isn't just like, oh yeah, I found an extra $1,000, I can go buy a nice couch. This is transformative. This is salvific in those levels of poverty. That's the type of money that can get your children out of the cycle of poverty. That if you're a woman in certain situations, you can have her marry up into a family that will be of better status. If you're, uh, you might be able to educate your child and put them through schooling so that they can break out of the cycle of poverty. For, for people and women who are the poorest of the poor, 
This is not just an income. This is salvation for their families, for the people that they care most deeply about. And so they offer up their bodies as labor to birth salvation into their world. We read today this story of the Magnificat. It's the traditional name for this song. It's a song that Mary gives. She goes and learns she's pregnant, all this good stuff, goes and visits her sister. Her sister's like, yeah, you're really cool. And she's like, I'm going to sing about it for 10 verses and sings this Magnificat. And it's this beautiful poetry. I don't know how much you caught during the reading of it, but it's just this gorgeous poem uh, exalting God for the situation she's in. And there's a lot of things about her situation that could have been negative, that were seen as negative. She was unwed. That's a huge, a huge thing. Could mean that she was uh, killed. Could mean that she was subject to a lot of penalties or restrictions. And there's this negative situation that she's in, and she transforms it. She offers up her body to carry a child that's not hers, to birth into the world salvation for humankind. Like those Indian mothers, she's seeing something bigger than just herself and her plight. She's allowing herself to enter into this ambiguous situation, kind of morally, possibly bad situation, and just enter into it to birth salvation for her people. And she gets this. She gets this. In the Magnificat, she sings, God has pulled down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant, Israel. The whole thing is going to change. And she is key to birthing this change into the world, to participating in the great and glorious salvation of her people and ultimately the world through her participation in God's action. Rather than reducing women to their sexuality, Advent tells of women wresting control of their situations to birth freedom, liberation, salvation for themselves and their people. To me, that is so much more interesting than knowing what Mary's sexual status is. And so in this season, may you continue to be on the watch for how God is birthing salvation into the world through us. May you find where that is happening and join in to participate in God recreating the world. May it be so.